Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello world, this is the Global Media and Communication podcast series. I am Aswin Punatambekar, the Director of the Center for Advanced Research in Global Communication. This is Jing Wang, the Senior Research Manager at CARC. Our podcast is part of a multimodal project powered by CARG here at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. At CARG, we produce and promote critical, interdisciplinary, and multimodal research on global media and communication. We aim to bridge academic scholarship and public life, bringing the very best scholarship to bear on enduring global questions and pressing contemporary issues. Hi, welcome to the podcast, Global Media and Communication. I'm your host today, Jing Wang. This will be my uh, last episode as Senior Research Manager at CARG, actually. Afterwards, I'll be moving to University of Wisconsin-Madison and start my new position as Assistant Professor at the School of Journalism and Mass Communication. And today, our guest is Dr. Zhang Ling. Dr. Zhang is the author of a new book called the Labor of Reinvention, Entrepreneurship in the New Chinese Digital Economy. And the book just came out very fresh in the spring of 2023. It's published by Columbia University Press. Welcome, Dr. Zhang. Thank you. Thank you, Jing. Well, it's my honor to have you here. And uh, first of all, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Uh, sure. I'm Lin Zhao. I'm currently a assistant professor um, of communication and media studies at the University of New Hampshire. My research uh, roughly focuses on what I call critical innovation studies and information labor uh, and intersectionality, meaning I study issues like um, uh, innovation and information capitalism, but from a kind of more critical perspective, really looking at, for example, issue of inequalities, whether it's gender, kind of national class inequalities, um, and and other aspects uh, that you know make us reflect, be more reflexive of uh, innovation. So would you like to uh, share with us a brief history of your book, like what sparked your interest in this topic mm. and how did you begin imagining this as a book? Yeah, of course. Uh, so um, actually, it, the project started pretty early um, in I would say 2010 and 2011. So I actually documented some of that experience of, you know, um, writing this book in my, um, in, in the last chapter in the epilogue of the book, uh, and also in the introduction as well, where I talk about the method of writing uh, this book. Um, it all started on a kind of um, journey back to the countryside to visit my cousin, right? Uh, so, um, so on that trip, when I was, taking 
the sort of uh, intercity bus um, to uh, from uh, traveling from the city to the countryside to rural China. I noticed on the way some of the advertisement posted on the walls, uh, advertising, encouraging um, peasants, uh, you know, uh, farmers to. Uh, go online and, and, and join the e-commerce industry. And it's from Alibaba. So Alibaba is a Chinese um, e-commerce corporations actually listed in New York. Right? So it's a global corporation as well. Um, so I was a little bit surprised and I was even more surprised when I arrived and learned that my cousin, um, who is uh, a little bit older than me at that time um, in his uh, mid thirties, um, you know, he turned himself into an entrepreneur, e-commerce entrepreneur, um, and and selling uh, the kind of village-made handicrafts online. And he used to be just the year before, uh, for a long time, almost a decade, he was a migrant worker working in a toy factory in Guangdong province, those kind of export-oriented industry. And uh, more recently, he moved uh, uh, back uh, to his home, um, you know, to start start uh, working from home on, on e-commerce, uh, mainly because uh, he was kind of tired of that experience as a migrant labor and and also the born of uh, his uh, second daughter really prompt him to you know find some kind of alternative to close to home right so um so that's you know during during my stay he talked uh, to me um a lot about you know his experience and he also took me to this village uh, it's actually a set of villages uh with uh this one village that i call w um, in in a book as a major site, which is also crowned as by Alibaba as a Taobao village or e-commerce village, right? Taobao is a kind of consumer-to-consumer uh, -consumer side of affiliated to Alibaba, right? So uh, W is one of the Taobao villages. Um, but that's where I end up doing, you know, a lot of my um, ethnography uh, for that chapters. I actually spent on and off, um, you know, more than, more than six mo months in the village and living in the um with with some of the uh, entrepreneurs and you know villagers and there um and and so that started out as a dissertation and i know it would be a book <laughs> someday and it's, it took me uh you know probably five years to finish the dissertation and then another five to six years to finish the book and so that's really a kind of decade time in the making of this project you know a book definitely has a life trajectory of itself. But hearing you talking about how this book came into being from the conception to realization makes me acutely aware of the time and effort you put into the book. And that's really an achievement. Um, and when I look at the book, which is actually sitting next to me right now, the book title in, intrigues me instantly um, because we usually, you know, take entrepreneurship for granted and rarely think of it in, in relation to the idea of labor. So I'm very curious, how do you think about entrepreneurship or rethink about it through the lens mm. of labor? And you also mentioned in your introduction that um, entrepreneurialism is an ideology. What do you mean mm. by that? Sure. Yeah, that's a very good um, question. Uh, in the book, I try to distinguish entrepreneurialism from entrepreneurship uh, to uh, really 
foreground my central analytic of uh, the quote unquote labor of entrepreneurial reinvention. I know it's a little bit mouthful, but I think it you know best get at, at what I want to express uh, with that con conceptualization. So um, in my tracing of the genealogy of entrepreneurship, I found that in classic classical economics, it was largely subsumed in other elements of production, e either as kind of skilled labor or as providers of capital. So as you could see from the very beginning, entrepreneurship uh, did not really, um, you know, uh, fit into the Marxian dichotomy of capitalist versus proletariat, right? Um, but it was really after a neoclassical economic theories had elevated the market as a kind of counterweight to state uh, in the mid to uh, late 20th century, what we call the kind of a neoliberal moment, um, that the entrepreneur, not labor, came to be seen as a kind of motor of um, economic development. So I see entrepreneurialism as uh, the dominant ideology of global financial capitalism. Unlike entrepreneurship, entrepreneurialism is more of an ideology uh, formed as a result of uh, the kind of hegemonic ascendance of neoliberal politics globally. Uh, its hegemony uh, peaked, I would say, in the 2010s, uh, when we witnessed, on one hand, the kind of unprecedented excess liquidity, financial liquidity in the capital market, and on the other hand, the increasingly blurred boundaries between work and labor um, and entrepreneurship, and with the rise of things like e-commerce, right, right hailing, co-working, all these kind of spaces and labor practices. And my analytic of the labor of entrepreneurial reinvention really attempts to problematize entrepreneurialism's universal promises of inclusivity, empowerment, and freedom, right? So those kind of really touted by uh, the uh, corporations, but also sometimes by state, uh, developmental state, by examining the sort of actual experiences of individual and collective entrepreneurial reinvention as labor, right? So I try to emphasize the labor aspect of it. And also by highlighting this kind of broader transformation capitalism as um, quote unquote reinvention uh, um, while focusing on the Chinese experience with entrepreneurial labor. And I, uh, I try to emphasize here past dependency and embeddedness uh, of this kind of new practices in pre-existing social relations and also institutional governance structures. Um, right, so for example, following the three-decade um, troubled experiment with socialism, post-Mao China uh, definitely appropriated the ideology of entrepreneurialism after the country's gradual re reintegration into global capitalism since uh, the 1970s, right? So uh, we uh, witness in ideological terms a form of Chinese variant of um, uh, new economics that I call in the book new institutionalism, and this will actually consider China either as a kind of successful example of laissez-faire capitalism, or conversely as negative lessons where kind of weak property rights and extensive government intervention created an unfavorable environment for entrepreneurs. At the same time, we also um, witness rise of what I call Chinese culturalists, uh, who often relies more on essentialized cultural differences and try to celebrate, for example, the rise of so-called Confucian entrepreneur was quite popular in management for, for a long time. Um, but if you go beyond entrepreneurialism, this kind of Chinese variant of that, to analyze the kind of actual working for entrepreneurial invention in post-Mao China, you'll see a different st story. Uh, which is the story I try to tell in the book to highlight different 
uh, less antithetical state market relationships, and also the resilience of family, both as an economic unit and as a source of cultural identity. But instead of reinforcing Chinese institutionalism or formulating a China model to be emulated, I try to map out what I call is a kind of China paradigm. Uh, which is a term I borrowed from the late historian Arif Derlich. Um, so to, to try to see the Chinese experience not as a finished project to be emulated universally, but as a kind of a work in pro progress, in an experiment of some sort, right? Um, and an ongoing one in how the kind of global principles articulate to um, historical circumstances and local realities in the process of nation building and also kind of personal reconstruction. Um, and, and this means I try to focus not just on the success and the potentialities, but definitely there are a lot of that in the Chinese experience, but also on limitations and mistakes, right? So on those who have benefited, but al also on those who lost out. Uh, so that's sort of how I, you know, try to... Um, um, highlight um, how I position myself theoretically in relation to all the others that are out there. That was really helpful um, to understand the concept of entrepreneurship, but also uh, entrepreneurialism as an ideology. And apart from these key concepts, um, context also matter a lot. Uh, when you were introducing how the book came into being, and you kind of offered a genealogy of how you trace different sites, basically uh, primarily three sites, urban um, and rural, as well as transnational. I'm fascinated by this comparative approach. And uh, when, if you know, our listeners, if you take uh, hold of the book and you open the book, actually book is divided into three sections based on these three types of spaces. I'm curious, um, what made you decide to divide the book mm. into these three sections based on these mm. spaces? I don't know if you, you, you heard about that, but sometimes um, people would say that study China is like a black man um, feeding the elephant elephant right so depending on which part you touch because it's so big so complex with such a long history uh, you know if you're a historian you definitely see China differently from a contemporary social scientist, right? And if you study rural China, it would be different from urban China. If you should study gender issues, it would be different from if you study class, right? So that's, I think, the general challenge that a China studies person would face. Um, so in a way, I'm trying to sort of you know, do the impossible <laughs> of providing mm -hmm. a comprehensive uh, picture of China. Um, uh, but but really, I, I think this uh, kind of attempt, whether it's successful or not, or to what extent it's successful. But I think my intention behind that is to you know have such a structure, um, you know, to allow us to see how rural, urban, transnational China experience uh, the broader transformation um, differently. And also try to highlight how uh, what I call intersectionality, whether it's you know class, gender, locale, right, where you are located, rural urban divide, very important and transnational dimension in the, in, the, in the Chinese case, um, and age as well, right. So um, there are a lot of that elements. Um, so how this kind of intersectionality and positionality really matters, um, depending on you know where you are, how you experience China, and how you know through filter through that experience, your uh, conclusion about what China is like. 
right? For example, the kind of transnationally mobile women entrepreneurs reselling luxury products via social media that I examined in uh, the last section there in transnational China encounter um, are very different from, uh, you know, a rural women who manufacture or sell handicraft online. Um, and, and But through such comparison of um, largely focusing on kind of emerging labor digital uh, platform mediated practices, we also come to see kind of shared themes and patterns that allows me to make a larger argument about the importance of, for example, state um, and family in shaping entrepreneurial labor in China. So I think it's sort of extrapolate something bigger argument from all these different sides and also in a way pay attention to the differences comparisons and also nuances um inequalities for example in each of the chapter that you know help really frame frame my project and how i structure the book that's really helpful to know and i wonder um since it's three very different types of sites and very different kind of field work um how did you encounter them differently in terms of personal mm. experience? Like, how did your fieldwork felt like back then if you were doing mm. fieldwork back in the W Village or in uh-huh. Zhongguancun in the middle of yeah, yeah. Beijing in a cosmopolitan city? Um, right. Yeah. Do you want to share a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right. So it's very different experience. Um, I think, for example, in the village, Village China, and partially because I have that kind of uh, connections <laughs> uh, through my cousin in a way, so he introduced me there. And um, um, I, 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 people are were very friendly, and it's more of um, kind of um, what you would call. Um, or people who are familiar with each other, former society. So they would introduce you to each other and very quickly you can, you know, basically know a lot of people <laughs> in the village. Uh, and uh, and they would invite you for, you know, dinner or lunch and, you know, very open to you to observe uh, their family once you, you know, re- re- gain their trust. Um, but also the challenge there is uh, first they speak in the kind of local dialects, uh, although I'm from the area, not too far, but still uh, the countryside and urban China are very different, as you know. Um, as someone who's grown up in the uh, in, in urban urban Shandong, I I still have to really uh, uh, you know adapt to learn and and to to grasp how they how how they speak. It took me a while, but also to sort of understand. Uh, their experiences on their terms, right? Um, they definitely, where they came from, is very from, different from uh, my experience growing up in urban China and going uh, abroad to study. So I try to really kind of read more about um, uh, rural China's history, especially with regard to that region, and also talk to them about, you know, to older people, especially about the history of the region, the villages, um, the industry history, and talking to people, for example, who worked in the state-owned uh, handicraft factories and to understand the trajectory of that. I think that, that ended up being very product- pr- productive for me to see something that I wouldn't be able to see if I just, you know, um, uh, focusing on the contemporary part, um, and Zhongguancun is, um, yeah, it's in a way more challenging because um, um, 
and and it's big, it's huge, uh, and 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 a lot of time you are studying up, right? So in sociology, we call it study, study down, study up. So um, sometimes it's harder for you to negotiate access, and people are so busy, <laughs> and and especially in the government. I, I think at that time it was still okay. I, I know it's. Uh, getting increasingly challenging for researchers with uh, foreign background to study uh, anything in China, especially if you want to talk to government officials. Um, so that's a, a challenge there. But also, in a way, because I um, have um, kind of international experience, um, and I sort of feel more relatable in a way to some of my interviewees, especially the kind of elite entrepreneurs who also studied abroad. And that helps me to establish some kind of rapport with them during the conversation. And sometimes we share similar challenges <laughs> and, and see similar things. So I think that um, helped in a way, right? Um, and also spending a lot of time in my formative years um, uh, in the in the in the in the in, in actually in the eighties, I was in Zhongguan with my parents, and and oh. also later in two thousand, they they worked there at that time when um what was really little, and then going back for college in two thousand, um and really helped me to you know already have that kind of sense of history of of the region, uh the district and Beijing as well, um so pros and cons, but really you have to really be adaptable <laughs> as an ethnographer. Yeah. Yeah, when I was uh, reading the third part, for instance, for the mm. transnational entrepreneurship, particularly with the mm. focus on the women, um, I was smiling when I was reading you wrote. <laughs> um, you actually also did some kind of the business mm. yourself as well. Um, yeah. yeah. Was that fun? Yeah. How did you do it? Yeah, I did a little bit of autoethnography. I collaborated with someone uh, who's actually a former ex employee of Alibaba in the PR division and re um, left the company because of family reason. Um, and uh, so we uh, met during my field work in Hangzhou and uh, somehow like we really liked each other. And he, she really wanted the kind of uh, person who helped her uh, overseas and she's interested in expanding. She already has a Taobao business, uh, e-commerce business, selling mainly um clothes um sourced from from Hangzhou in, in Hangzhou and to kind of more international upscale luxury products so I worked for, with her for a very short period of time um just to experience that but I learned uh lesson that how hard it is uh and very time consuming and it's definitely not um easy right so that gave me a good understanding of uh the sort of um uh you know, both online and offline, both in China and transnationally. In in, in I was in Los Angeles at that time. Um, how to negotiate with shop assistants, for example? How to deal with customers and transportation? How to transport uh, transport all these kind of really expensive bags mm -hmm. <laughs> or uh, jewelry, uh, right? Uh, back back to China. So I learned a lot um, and and risks involved. Uh, so that's. Uh, it's a fun experience, but it's more of a lesson learned <laughs> than, you know, than um, relaxing. It's not very relaxing. 
I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Well, that sounds a lot of work for sure. Um, And now that we have a clear idea of how you actually uh, lay the theoretical ground and also contextualize the whole story, and you also help us understand how you did your field work, um, we will delve deeper into each of those spaces and have a closer look at some of the central contradictions underlying what you call the labor of reinvention in China's digital economy. So in part one, which takes place in Zhongguancun in Beijing, um, you actually take us to the heart of the digital reinvention as we usually think about of China's digital economy. And there you documented the lives of IT entrepreneurs who aspired to attract venture capital investment and also established their own startup tech companies. So when I was reading it, I was uh, particularly struck by the two types of entrepreneurs you compared in the book. Uh, one is the elite type and the other is the grassroots type. Uh, what are their similarities and differences in terms of the entrepreneurial reinvention? Mm-hmm. Right. So to be honest, I was a little surprised to find so many what I call non-elite entrepreneurs um, in the co-working spaces in Zhongguan's when I did my ethnography, especially one of my major field sites, the Garage Cafe, um, Choku Cafe, and Inouye, Chuangye Dajie. So that's the kind of two major sites I really focus on. Uh, so for those of you don't know, uh, the Garage Cafe is a kind of cafe style um, space that combines co-working space with um, incubators and it's um, kind of prides itself on being really inclusive and open to uh, people, you know, even without a lot of backgrounds. Um, and then the in a way, uh, it's a state subsidized street of high uh, high tech incubators, co working spaces, and also some of the experience centers of big tech companies like Tencent um, and X, and also kind of. Ex- uh, consists of ex- exhibition uh, exhibit rooms for, uh, to showcase China and Beijing's high-tech outputs and products, right? So it's a kind of more state-led, um, um, but also uh, run by universities, run by um, state-owned companies, and also private private big tech companies and start some startups as well. So after a few weeks in the field, I learned uh, in Zhongguan that there exists a social um, 
hierarchy or so-called chain of contempt in Chinese, mm -hmm. among Zhongguan's entrepreneurs. Um, so at the very top of the hierarchy sits overseas returnees who are um, well-trained and highly technically proficient. Uh, many came with their own patent technologies. So I'll probably introduce one of the persons to give you a con concrete sense later, but um, um, that's one type. And equally well positioned are former employees of established Chinese internet companies like BAT or Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, or sometimes big uh, state-owned enterprises, Yangqi, Guoqi, right? and or, or foreign multinational companies um, like Google, for example. Uh, in my research, I see them as more elite than the grassroots um, entrepreneurs who are, uh, for example, migrant workers, some of them, uh, graduates of non-elite need colleges, right? Like uh, associate degrees, sometimes not even bachelor's degrees, uh, or, or a lot of them without, um, you know, a college degree. And some are also rural entrepreneurs who were kind of successful uh, in their local setting, but interested in expanding their businesses. Um, they all tend to be less technically or professionally trained. Um, and uh, many of them, the grassroots ones, joined uh, the entrepreneur rush in Zhongguan later, um, actually uh, during the kind of mass entrepreneurship and innovation boom, when it had already kind of peaked in 2013 and 15. Um, and so, but of course, the elite versus grassroots categorization, I would say, comes in a spectrum instead of a you know, binary, right? Um, so you see people kind of variously positioned on that spectrum. And some of the incubators, like uh, uh, the incubator run by Microsoft and Tsinghua University Enterprises and Lunumo, for example, they are more exclusive and only open to elite entrepreneurs. But co-working spaces and cafes on Inouye especially are more um, open, partially because, interestingly, as I mentioned in the, in the book, because of the fact that many enjoy state subsidy um, and it's a kind of a direct product of the state's um, policy campaigns, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So they have that kind of actual, actual economic responsibility in a way. Um, so, um, so, so sometimes the grassroots and entrepreneurs would be in the same space with more elite ones, uh, learning to write, for example, a business proposal and sometimes to seek venture capital institutions and angel investors to support their projects. But the majority of them, I would say, uh, eventually fail um, to land any funding. Um, and um, as I said in the book, many actually bore a kind of striking resemblance to the grassroots entrepreneurs active in Zhongguanzun's electronics malls, right? So that really sell some of the kind of China-made electronics components or small gadgets in the 2000s. And um, they came to Zhongguanzun with dreams of becoming their own bosses and also motivated by media stories of grassroots entrepreneurs like them who, um, you know, whose lives has probably been transformed by seizing on these opportunities to open up a reform. Uh, but a lot of them end up being disillusioned, right? Mm. Yeah, those stories really help us to see the the inherent contradictions, as you you just mm -hmm. mentioned, in in the lives of ordinary people. And now, if we move 
from Zhongguancun uh, in Beijing to more rural areas to the countryside mm. in China. And your focus shifts to the migrant returnees and the rural mm. to urban entrepreneurs in China's rural periphery. So in, in Section 2, um, you call their e-commerce entrepreneurship as platform-sized family production. Can you elaborate a little bit what you mean by that? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. So when I was doing field work on uh, Taobao or e-commerce villages in China, I was struck by how prevalent uh, the family-based organization of labor was in almost kind of all of my sites that I visited, not just in Shandong, which I end up spending a lot of time there, but also in Hebei, in Henan, in Zhejiang, in Jiangsu, um, m- many other places. So this made me think about the nature of so-called platform economy and platformization, right? And to, just to quote uh, Adrian Athik, uh, who is um, a um, scholar of um, Indian digital economy, and we had a conversation, um, um, uh, I think, a couple of weeks ago. And he said, uh, basically, that uh, platform economy um, pl- uh what it does is to uh, platform existing market exchanges rather than fashion new objects exchange, right? So it's always kind of crafting onto something um, there. Mm. So the concept of platformized family production or platformized family production is really my attempt at theorizing the nature of platform economy in China um, as being crafted onto existing family-based rural agriculture, handicraft, and also industrial production already kind of rural industrialization going on in China. So, um, for example, in the handicraft econ village that I studied, um, I did extensive ethnographic research. Uh, local handicraft making tradition actually dates back for thousands of years and have been incorporated already into the global production regime, at least from the Republican years um, in the early decades of 20th century. Um, but this uh, kind of gendered family production persisted um, and during the socialist years and actually boomed in post-Mao China as part of the kind of revitalization of the subcontracting network for Western corporations like Walmart or IKEA. Um, and this export-oriented industrial uh, chain mat- matured with the maturation of that. Peace rate weaving work was outsourced to women weavers in riverbank villages um, like the W, right? So W is just one of that that's really close to the county seat, but you really have like 20 to 30 villages along the uh, river bank or like that. And men in W were, um, and in these villages were giving up farming and migrating to cities to work on fact- in factories like my cousin <laughs> uh, or um, for them on construction sites, a lot of them. And most women actually stayed at home to work as waivers for uh, private handicraft export firms. Um, in addition to farming and domestic responsibilities. And a lot of the firms, actually, the owners were um, former state-owned or collective-owned factory employees. So you really see the sort of layers layers of continuity there. And all these have laid the foundation for the rural e-commerce boom uh, starting from late uh, 2000, when the sudden decline in Western export market led, the factory, uh, led to factory layoffs and closures and forcing many migrant workers to return to the countryside. Mm-hmm. And uh, a new generation of expanding middle-class consumers in China really constitute a kind of a new market for e-commerce. 
So the migrant returnees and, you know, sometimes also reverse urban to rural migrants um, mm. emerge as a new generation of entrepreneurs in rural China. And I think they are the force, one of the important force behind the platformization of family production in rural China. Mm. And you mentioned that actually local governments and large tech yeah. companies like Alibaba also play mm. a very crucial role in shaping mm. this new rural production model. Can you elaborate mm. on that? Yeah, yeah of course. So um, actually, the Chinese state has been trying to promote rural e-commerce since the early um, I would I, I would say at least since the early two thousand, if not um, earlier. Uh, because China has always been a big agricultural nation, right? Um, so over the years, um, many state infrastructure projects like building roads, uh, bringing electricity, and later broadband internet to the countryside, right? Certainly uh, were at the basis of the expansion of rural e-commerce, right? So that's where you'll see, you know, when I hear about my colleagues uh, studying Brazil, for example, studying India and talking about the challenges without the infrastructure of really developing e-commerce in rural areas, I see the sort of how important that basis is. Um, but it was not until the late 2000, after the financial crisis, that we witnessed a boom in e-commerce. Um, mainly, I would say, driven by private e-commerce companies like Alibaba and Jingdong, or JD at that time, another e-commerce company. And later on, uh, in more recent years, um, live streaming companies uh, or, or short video companies like ByteDance, uh, who is a mother company of um, TikTok, but in Chinese it's Douyin, right? And also Kuaishou. Um, and Taobao also have, has its own live streaming sites. Um, they became the most important driver and backer of um, the recent boom. Um, and in the book and in some of my published articles, I talk in details about how the kind of a new um, public and private partnership were formed uh, between big tech, company, tech companies and state at both the central and local levels. Uh, the central state actually in the early days adopted a rather laissez-faire um, attitude towards tech companies like Alibaba and JD. And after 2008, uh, the relationship actually grew more symbiotic, uh, partially because of uh, the kind of already they perceive as crucial role uh, that these domestic big techs uh, play in lifting China out of the global recession um, and also in spearheading the so-called economic restructuring and generating employment, but also entrepreneurialized employment in a way. And and this uh, shift also facilitated what I think, um, you know, looking at from the local uh, uh, local level from ground up, a sea change in local states' attitudes towards these tech companies. Um, so in the in the in the in the in the beginning, some of them were agnostic, especially in like Zhejiang, for example, could be more entrepreneurial. But that's where also where Alibaba uh, started, right? Uh, but in Shandong, really, they were more conservative, more reluctant. But, but, but after the central state's attitudes shifted, uh, they, um, the local gov politicians, government, government, whether you're talking about the county level, the village level, or even the provincial municipal level, they actually you know, started to compete with each other to uh, collaborate with companies like Alibaba in expanding rural uh, e-commerce in their jurisdiction. Like what they used to do, they compete for foreign investment, right? To, you know, for foreign companies to have a factory in China. 
uh, during the during the height of export oriented economy. So here we see really see how this kind of central local relations under China's centralized minimalist tradition, which I sort of highlighted in the in the book. Uh, you know, borrowing from uh, Philip Huang's, uh, sociologist Philip Huang's concept, how that tradition has kind of uh, co-evolved uh, with um, platformization of the Chinese countryside, right? So central local relation has transformed with the entry of uh, big tech companies and platformization. So while we talk about um, the rural entrepreneurs, the e-commerce in the countryside has brought a lot of new employment and opportunities for the villagers, as you mentioned in the book. But also, you're very attentive to the uh, new inequalities that arise from these new e-commerce opportunities. So, for example, you talked about the gendered labor in the W Village and how the e-commerce valorized certain types of gender labor. Um, how? Mm. So in, in general, I do think that rural incomes has helped to narrow rural-urban rural income gap. And now that we see kind of more and more incomes village in central western China, it's likely to play a role in narrowing regional inequalities too, which is kind of an important part of where you know Chinese inequalities come from, the regional and rural-urban differences. That being said, I, I don't think e-commerce or any types of platform digital economy is a magic solution to structural issues like you mentioned, uh, gender inequalities and the patriarchal order in rural uh, China. So the majority of so-called model entrepreneurs, if you you know uh, look at um, their profiles, um, you know picked by either picked by local governments or companies like like Alibaba are young or middle-aged men. Right. Uh, but if you visit the family workshops, you'll see that women probably take up more work, uh, whether it's related to e-commerce, um, you know, customer services, design, maintenance of e-commerce storefront, uh, uh, taking product photos, sourcing products, or equally important, um, but often less uh, not remunerated at all, reproductive labors, right? Like mm -hmm. cooking, child elderly caring. So I think this definitely has to do with the traditional Confucian gender codes of uh, men leads outside and women lead inside, right? Nan zhu wai, nu zhu nei. And um, the gender inequalities and also, also often uh, intersect with age, right? Uh, like um, the handicraft e-commerce village I studied, only uh, older women are willing to and sometimes you know, have the skills to really do handicraft manufacturing. Uh, which is, I would say, the hardest and least respected and least uh, remunerated part of this um, uh, labor in the whole supply chain. And the fact that very, uh, very few young uh, young women or men want to uh, do manufacturing is actually hurting the long-term sustainability of the e-commerce uh, industry in the village I examined. Can I quickly follow up on the last mm. point that you mentioned? So you mentioned that it would in long term actually harm the long sustainability mm. of innovation. And there's a lot of Shanghai products, mm. you know, in mm. those rural e-commerce entrepreneurship. In what sense are they copycat or Shanghai? Uh, yeah, so... Um... So, so Shanghai, uh, uh, Shanghai is uh, so basically you can roughly translate it into um, uh, copycat products, right? So in a way, I, I there's a lot of hopes, uh, both um, 
you know, in the industry, uh, from the government, and also within the community about how the kind of platformization uh, e-commerce would help to kind of upgrade industry beyond the export-oriented Shenzhen model. So you know the Shenzhen model really was a product of export, right? Because when you sell to Walmart and Ikea, you don't have your own brands. You don't have your, you know, uh, patents or all that. Uh, you just produce for them and you compete with other sellers uh, by offering the lower uh, price at a higher quality, right? So that's how you operate your business in a kind of export-oriented economy. So there was a lot of hope about, you know, now we have e-commerce, now um, um, we have our own brands, we can do branding uh, and we can uh, you know, come up with our own indigenous de designs instead of just, you know, follow the order of the Western uh, uh, companies who source products from us, uh, we can move up the value chain. But um, so that certainly happened for uh, to a certain extent for uh, some of the very successful businesses. But it's also uh, not the whole picture, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so um so the kind of search ranking of online sales and also the kind of profit mechanizing algorithm for e-commerce platforms like Taobao or Alibaba's website um, and others um, also discourage rural entrepreneurs from investing labor and time in designing and testing new products and improving the quality. Uh, for example, an example would be how a kind of baokuan or best-selling product is created. Right. So a baokuan is born when, you know, a product and its many copycat variations become um, almost ubiquitous among consumers across the country, both online and offline, that you see, you know, all kinds of variations of that. And companies, e-commerce companies actually would encourage, implicitly encourage the creation of baokuan products by turning a blind eye to copying um, by e-sellers e listed on the platforms. Um, and, and also, um, you know, for example, Taobao has this really complicated and also often uh, adjusting search uh, ranking algorithms um, and also uh, plugins, marketing plugins like so-called Zhitongche. So Zhitongche is a paid search ranking system that charges shop owners a per collect fee to help them improve their uh, product link uh, ranking on on, on, on Taobao, right? So you actually purchase your product ranking depending on how much you are willing to pay. Um, right, so villagers would, uh, you know, rather invest more money and time uh, into, you know, uh, marketing and also working and gaming with Taobao's algorithms instead of uh, doing original design or innovation. Because even if you do that, if you don't have a high product ranking, your designs would be stolen by others and they would be the one who really profit off your effort in you know being creative being innovative and all that right so i think that's a major challenge um, and the challenge was worsened in a way by the village structure because for example in the village i studied they all source from um you know the similar network the same network of village-based um uh, 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 weavers, right, uh, who produce a product on the ground. This makes them very different from, for example, someone, uh, American entrepreneur selling on Amazon, right? They have to really source products elsewhere. There's a distance and uh, between them and the producer, and they don't exist in the same space. Um, 
which makes you know knock a little bit harder to do but in that village structure where you can source product quickly and copy a product quickly if you see something that's really selling very well you can just ask the for example the same auntie to to make the same design for you or with a little bit variation right i think um the combination of the platform, its algorithm, and its kind of community-based selling, and also the village structure of mm. production, right? Home-based production really exacerbated the problem of Shenzhen or copying, which is surprising to a lot of people because they thought this would help us become more creative and innovative. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is one thing. Um, also, constantly when I was reading through the book, I find there are so many paradoxes and contradictions that you try to pay attention to and be very, very uh, specific about why they came about in the way that they they are. So, um, mm. as we talk about the gender labor in part two, it's kind of a perfect mm. segue to part three. Because the part three also focuses on the gender labor, but from a transnational perspective. So you write about the the middle class or upper middle class women who work as daigo in transnational setting. For our listeners who who might not be familiar with daigo, can you explain it a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So, daigo, uh, uh, you can translate it as um, you know some people say it's personal shopping agent. Right, you purchase something on behalf of someone else, um, usually overseas, or there's also a phrase called product arbitraging. Uh, it's another. <laughs> Uh, because there's a price difference in where you can get it in China, for example, or where you can get it in the uh, U.S. or other places because of the tariffs, uh, customs, uh, or uh, reselling. Right. So I I adopt the phrase reselling um, in um, in in the book. Uh, so basically, uh, the uh, it would be uh, women who either based in um, a foreign country. Uh, or um, you know, travels there, especially to Korea and Japan, for example, closer to China, right? So they, they would buy branded Western, uh, sometimes luxury, sometimes not so luxury, like milk, milk powder <laughs> uh, products overseas, and then resell some well social media platforms uh, to consumers in China. Um, and this practice actually has a very long history in contemporary Chinese society, um, especially with Hong Kong. Um, you know, as a central hub, uh, and also Hainan and Fujian, like smuggling <laughs> in the early years, uh, even before the reform and opening up. Um, uh, but I think in the China, in the contemporary context, in terms of social media mediated, it really took off in the 2000, and especially after 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when China became the world's largest luxury market, and still is these days. Um, and that's why you'll see a lot of like um, Western, uh, you know, big brands, French, Italian brands, really kind of coming up with designs that's tailored to Chinese or Asian customers. And then also um, continued high uh, tariffs or customers levied at Western luxury products. And sometimes people's general mistrust of Chinese made products, especially like baby milk formula, there was a stangle attached to that. And so a lot of people, you know, want to purchase overseas. And also I would add increased kind of international mobility of Chinese uh, middle-class people, whether they're students, um, professionals, uh, you know, diplomats, or just, you know, tourists, right? 
Yeah, that's true. And being also a Chinese or formerly being a Chinese graduate student in the U.S., I could definitely relate to that aspect as well. Um, but what strikes me is the large structural precarity that the women you, you described actually live mm. through, despite all the cosmopolitan glamour, you know, involved in their own self branding. Um, toward the end of part three, for example, you, you particularly highlight the multiple pressures from, say, the Chinese government, the luxury mm. brands in the West, and also the, the digital platforms. And they mm. together marginalize these women's labor. But how mm. so? Uh, yeah, so, um, so I think um, for a long time, uh, you know the Chinese government uh, attitudes towards Daigo. So um, it's 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 kind of ambivalent. Sometimes they just tolerate it. Other times you will have periodical campaigns to really crack down on that uh, because it's tax custom evasion, right? That the government definitely don't want um, don't want that. Um, and there was especially I document in the book an incident happened uh, I think in the early uh, 2010s a flight attendant um, who was caught at the Korean Chinese border when he she tried to you know smuggle some Korean cosmetics for his uh, for her Taobao Daigo shop Taobao reselling shop and uh, trying to enter from a, a, a airport. Uh, he was uh, caught there and uh, and sentenced to quite a few years in prison. I think that was really kind of um, a kind of chilling point for a lot of luxury resellers. And unfortunately, like the story had a kind of a dark, darker, even darker side to it because she was laid off by the airline because of chronic illness. Um, um, and made her unable to really continue to work for them. And she had to find alternatives, right? And talking about the um, problems already built into the sort of gender gendered um, industry, like flight, flight attendants. Um, and um, so that's um, from the Chinese government. But more recently, I think there's um, efforts to really kind of uh, nationalized industry, for example, um, Hainan now is a free training zone. So that's part of the efforts of Chinese government trying to make that happen <laughs> in China instead of um, cross-borderly, right? So they really want to uh, encourage consumption, right? It's part of the kind of double circulation to emphasize domestic consumption. So that's something that's interesting to watch. Um, and I, I, that's also having a lot of impact on the Daigo industry as well. And the digital platforms, uh, the digital platforms, I would say from the uh, the early years, a lot of the Daigo really happens very informally in the gray area. Uh, the luxury sellers I talked to at that time would use, uh, for example, Sina Weibo and um, uh, Sina Microblog and um, uh, WeChat uh, uh, friend, uh, uh, moments to uh, you know um, sell their products and showcase their products. It's more there the kind of social media community and uh, selling are more blurred and more recent years increasingly you see platforms digital platforms companies trying to really professionalize that uh, for example Taobao has a global buy section now um, and then uh, Yang Matou and more uh, famously Xiao Hongshu or uh, the right mm -hmm. little book right <laughs> so a lot yep. of you are 
writing about it. It's I think it's based on the Daigo model. I really formalized the Daigo industry. And now you even have like MNCs, uh, all these kind of agencies and incubators that will cultivate influencers based abroad to have them establish a persona, right? But I think that really came from um, originally the Daigo industry. Yeah, so I think all these factors working together, you know, uh, they, it's a really very risky and constantly changing grounds for them to navigate and they have to if they stay a lot of them actually um, left the industry over the years but if they stay they really have to adapt and becoming more professionalized these days i would say compared to when i did a lot of research um in the early days and now it's a very formalized professionalized industry um, yeah. Well, now we've already covered almost the entirety of the book from the beginning to the end <laughs> I also want to bring up this question more broadly, like what a conversation mm. in the global studies of media and communication do you engage mm. in, in the book? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I see myself as engaging uh, with the kind of classic debate in global media and communication um, about media imperialism versus kind of localization or plurality of identities. But more recently, I think platform studies and digital labor studies really emerged as new kind of interdisciplinary sites where theories and knowledge of media and communication and global studies are produced. Uh, so I see myself as participating, really participating in the collective efforts to theorize China and Chinese experience as part of Asia, as part of the global South, to kind of de-Westernize communication and media studies, but not to kind of perpetuate um, or reinforce uh, essentialism or dichotomous thinking either, right? So the goal is really to talk about China, not just as a case study um, um, the, of, of, of theories abstracted from the global North experience, but rather to, you know, on one hand, to engage and be reflexive about global theories, right? So I think it's important to definitely engage with them in sort of really seriously. But on the other hand, also examining and document China's own historical trajectories and contemporary practices in comparative perspectives with an open mind. Um, and also to kind of establish a bridge between um, China Asian studies or studies uh, on the global south with communication and media studies in general. So toward the end, um, would you also like to share with us what is your next project? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I already mentioned some of my collaborative uh, projects, which really kind of um, try to continue with the kind of unfinished task I I try to pursue in the, in the, in, in in this first book. Uh, but my uh, Next big projects, uh, which is also my next monograph under preparation, would be focusing on the kind of transnational linkages in uh, biotechnology industry between the U.S. and China. Uh, so uh, uh, the book will try to uncover the U.S.-China linkages in transnational biotech industry since the 80s, uh, focusing on, for example, cross-border flow of regionalized knowledge work um, and entrepreneurship. Um, capital, technologies, and also policy mobilities. Um, so uh, it will also explore, I hope, um, you know, re how recent trends towards decoupling and strategic competition um, would kind of impact 
the the future of uh, U.S.-China relations. Thank you very much. That's really an exciting project, and we definitely will bring you back when the next book comes out. But for today, thank you so much for spending time with us and sharing your current book. Again, the book is The Labor of Reinvention, Entrepreneurship in the New Chinese Digital Economy by Dr. Zhang Ling. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you for um, the opportunity to share my work. Thank you for listening to our Global Media and Communication podcast. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out through our email, cargc at asc.upen.edu, or follow us on Twitter. Until next time.